Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Effie Pilarino, a global fintech influencer and disruptor. And we're going to talk about trends in wealth management, wealth tech, what's going on. I'm very curious to find out more. So welcome, Effie. How are you today? Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Rudolf. And I guess it's a very sunny day here in Zurich. I love the kind of light that we have today. And I'm very excited about everything that's happening in our space. I think we're at an inflection point in terms of innovation and a lot of established players, just because of the advances in AI, are disrupted or threatened. So I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about that. Great. So tell us about how did you get to do what you do today? I know you're from Greece, you lived in Canada, now in Switzerland. So how did you get to do what you do today? Oh, thank you for that question. It's always nice to go back. I I was a passionate mathematician. That's what I studied. And then I decided to go into finance. And I went to the US and did an MBA and I got a PhD in finance, very quantitative. And I started working on Wall Street at Salmon Brothers, very quant proprietary trading areas. I was in fixed income structured products in the 90s, exciting times, culturally different. And then I moved into the hedge fund industry I married a diplomat and traveled the world and reinvented myself in different places. As you mentioned, I've lived in Canada and taught at McGill University at the time of the global financial crisis. I was teaching real estate finance at McGill and options theory. I've written finance books with Frank Fabosi back at the time. And fast forward, I've been in Switzerland since, I guess, a decade now. And that was where I reinvented myself once again and decided to focus on innovation. And I started by self-educating back in 2015. I started blogging on Daily Fintech as a co-founder. And that's really how it all started. And fast forward to today, I'm a global fintech influencer, and I look and try to understand and curate my insights for the market to understand what is happening. And there's so many trends. And as you know, Rudolf, I write a blog every week, every Thursday, and I do a video. It's either an interview or a sort of video with my insights every Wednesday, and that is my contribution to the ecosystem. And I work with B2B, with companies really on thought leadership, co-creation of content 
and I also teach. Great. So you talked about reinvention, which is a nice segue to my next question. You also recently wrote about rebranding of private markets. What do you mean by this and why is it needed? Yeah, this is something that I'd love to go on a campaign to get rid of the private banking term because I think it's really outdated in this day and age. And the way I think of it, Rudolf, is if you look at what private banking was and how it came about, it's very interesting. I don't know how many people know the story. It's a story originating in the 1600s, so a couple of centuries ago. And it was at a time where the royal families and the noble families in Europe and in England were fearing that there might be revolutions. And through these revolutions, they feared that their assets and titles might be confiscated. So that's how private banking came about. And there were the, the two sort of private banking providers of the time was Coots in the UK, serving the British royal family, and the, for the Dutch royal family, it was a part of ABN AMRO, if I remember well, the name was Miss Pearson. So we're talking about the, this emphasis on royals and nobles and their private assets and talking about private banking to distinguish it from regular banking that's all about deposits and, and loans. Fast forward to today, we are at the stage where these um, fragmentations of customers by the amount of wealth doesn't make any more sense. The fact that we are democratizing access and offering access to everybody is a reality. Let's look at targeting high earners that are not yet rich in this type of trend. And I really think that private banking is so outdated. We should be talking about personalized banking for everybody. That is really how I see it. And I see it as a possibility of launching a campaign. Much Revolut had this ad launched last year. I don't know if you've, have you seen it where it's like somebody's breaking in. It's like your way in to the banking world versus the elite. So in my opinion, something like that needs to happen in asset management and, and wealth management. Let everybody come in and, of course, offer the service of what is appropriate for every person at their stage of their life. So again, it's personalized banking, contextual banking, not private banking with, as my friend April Rubin says, the mahogany tables in conference rooms. That's <laughs> what private banking was all about. We have to get over that. How does that sound? Right. Uh, but let's f follow up what you mentioned in passing, that it has to be appropriate for the people in their stage of life when it comes to their knowledge and also education, etc. That's why the regulators are protecting the retail investors. And that's why they impose regulations on public markets, 
because they say well, private markets are a lot more risky. So let's leave it to people who can afford to lose that money. So what about the risk? Aren't private markets labeled as alternatives because of the risk and not so much the access? So maybe both, obviously. I think it's both and more it's about the access because remember most of the private market, and by the way, private markets are huge compared to public markets. We're talking $18 trillion, right? And they've been operating in very opaque ways, deals amongst business people and private clubs and so on. So there's more opaqueness and definitely technology can change that. Now, in terms of the risk profiles, the biggest risk is illiquidity, right? But Let's not forget that tokenization is starting to become real and seems much closer than it was five years ago. So if tokenization takes off, then we are going to see more liquidity and less opaqueness in these private markets. And let's not forget that BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink, he is really sold, if you like, on the potential of tokenization and the democratization of private markets. And really, I'm not thinking, Rudolf, you and I are going to invest $100 or euros in a private equity deal, be it infrastructure, be it fixed income, be it whatever. I'm talking that instead of having to have a minimum of 1 million per deal, you can enter those markets with 10,000 and create a diversified portfolio. So lowering the barrier to entry, offering more education and more information if you want, much has been done through crowd investing. So I think we're moving in that direction Slowly, the infrastructure is being built and the regulators will catch up. All right. Understood. Understood. Now, moving on, how do you see the future of asset management as a whole? Why do we still have active asset management when for years there have been studies and arguments saying that, look, the active asset management doesn't beat the market. And then if you deduct the fees, it doesn't make sense. Everybody should go to passive. But we also have active. So... How do you see the future of asset managers? Do they have a place in the world going forward? Or once we have the technology, we'll have more access also to private markets and there will be other technologies. So people will have more transparency. Is there a future for active asset management or overall the industry? I firmly believe that there's a future for asset managers and it's going to be a sunny future enhanced by technology. It's this combination of humans, insights, experience, and technology, AI, mainly in in the asset management industry. And let's not forget, in terms of passive, I think there's been a major confusion or people have been interchangeably using passive investing with low-cost investing. And it's not the same thing. So a lot of the ETFs, that are the bread and butter of low-cost investing are not necessarily passive ones, meaning they're not necessarily 
index funds. They are low-cost wrappers that have done also very well because of the low interest rate environment and that we've experienced, they are precedented low interest rate environment that we've experienced the last decades, if you want. So I see a lot of potential for asset management, asset managers. We already have seen the big asset managers like JP Morgan, like BlackRock, investing in areas like direct indexing, which is personalization and customization, there's a big role there to be played. And you can see that as something that asset managers can do going forward that didn't exist in a very cost-effective way. It existed, but only for institutional and, if you want, high net worth individuals. The other big trend that I think there's a huge potential is the way Wealth managers collaborate with asset managers. Right now, asset managers are like, okay, they create these funds, these wrappers, and then they try and sell as a distribution channel through wealth managers. And where I see the potential is that wealth managers should enable, data enable the asset managers so they can have what I would call an API relationship between them instead of just a, I'm a vendor of a product to the wealth managers and we're competing on price or specialization, but rather on showing transparency on what you're doing, on what you're doing and co-creating new products the asset managers and the wealth managers. In other words, asset management has really to become a data-driven business, and it's not yet. Understood. So thank you for that clarification as well. Now, let's talk about passive funds and robo-advisors. When people first discovered robo-advisors, a lot of people were very excited because if you don't have a lot of money, you can still customize your investment portfolio according to your preferences, your values, etc. But where are we today after a couple of years, right? And are robo-advisors a threat to passive, more larger scale investment funds or not? Well, what we've seen is, I must say, that robo-advisory as a standalone business is one of the best examples of fintech failure, if you want because yes, robo-advisors like Betterment and Wealthfront, the first generation that's evolved, they have pushed the whole industry in terms of their digital investing offering, but as standalone business, they have not largely succeeded. And I would say that the industry, the incumbents like Schwab and Fidelity and so on, they have leapfrogged the robo-advisors and adapted, adopted their offerings. And yeah, and ETFs, uh, I would say, are the bread and butter of these digital low-cost offerings that are out there. And there's a variety of them with the best example or most innovative example coming again from Schwab, where they have a subscription offering for some of their clientele and 
you can have that subscription offering and have digital investing uh, offering through Charles Schwab and moving away from fees or charging percentage of assets under management. Exactly as you said, sometimes people are in love with their technology then trying to find a home for it, but there may not be enough, right? You should start with the customer, what is their pain point, then come up with a solution and then maybe you have a business. Coming back to that is the another buzzword that you that we can hear a lot these days is customer centricity. So you did mention about co-creation between wealth management and asset management divisions of firms. What do you think customer centricity means in these sectors these days? Yeah, it's a great question. I think customer centricity in this area started and continues to be first and foremost about how you onboard the customer and how you do it in a compliant way. So that's been for several years now the focus for wealth and asset managers. And as I said, depending on the jurisdiction, that is an ongoing process. At the same time, we've moved to the second phase of customer centricity, which is more focused on contextual communication with the client. So providing research, providing information that is contextual to the end client and then moving to a personalized offering, which I think that's behind. So that's where customer centricity is. In terms of being data-driven, what I to before, where asset managers are co-creating with the wealth managers investment products that are data-driven, we see less of that. But it is it is there. There's also the more well-known examples that are under the customer centricity, if you want, uh, trend of offering the potential for fractionalized investing, offering, again, alternative access to alternative assets and so on for certain clients, all that falls unpersonalized and customer-centric in the sense of offering more value to the customer than you offered before. It's an evolving space. It's a never-ending, if you want, a core focus of the business. And wealth and asset managers can learn a lot from the experiences in the retail banking area that that's much more ahead. And maybe we'll see... Hopefully, maybe we will see soon more bots in wealth and asset management that are smart and are more around digital advice where the client can ask some questions and get some options about what they should do around tax harvesting, what should they consider, should they rebalance, and so on. That is where the puck is heading in that direction. Then I'd like to pick on one word you said, uh, personalization. And I think everyone's also aware in wealth management or private banking of a generational change, right? So the new generation of high net worth individuals, will be more potentially digitally savvy, et cetera. So personalization to them will not mean, as you said, as a shout out to hosting them over lunch behind the Mahogon desk and maybe bringing champagne with it. But uh, it will more mean additional 
insights that they cannot find ourselves right on the internet do you think that this ai driven insights potentially can give advisors an edge that people will think this is really value added advice i wasn't able to just google it around myself a hundred percent and it's not only the ai driven advice it's also that the financial advisor has the capability to see the client as a whole person because the financial goals and the financial needs or the financial worries of every person are not um, unrelated with the rest of their life. So a financial advisor can take that into account. AI cannot contextualize it in that sense. AI can provide facts and figures and provide great insights and bring together the holistic picture of the client. For example, you're looking at the client, you're looking at their investment portfolio, but you should also be aware of their debt or their loan exposure. And AI can help you bring, not only get the integrated picture of the client, but also make sense of it. That's where AI can bring together. I think we are behind in terms of integrating the investment aspect of a client with the rest of their financial life, which is scattered all over the place. It's got to do with insurance. It's got to do with lending. It's got to do with spending. So AI can bring that, and then AI can help in terms of supporting personalized discussions. If, for example, the client is interested in investing in very cutting-edge innovation or investing in only climate tech, then AI can help that discussion, but the financial advisor will have that listening that only a person can have and will be enabled to do that because they're not dealing with all the other computational or bureaucratic work that is needed to be done to serve compliantly a client. So I think we are definitely going there. And ironically, if used correctly, AI will enable for better human relationships of the financial advisor with the, the end client. Right. So many of these ideas, though, they sound potentially like quite a bit of a challenge for an incumbent with legacy systems, right? So how do you transform incumbents into such data-driven, agile organizations without such a transition threatening their core business, right? It's always a push and pull, or do you want to implement these changes that can threaten what you actually get paid for this month or this quarter? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question and a question that has been discussed many times and there's no one answer in terms of the digital transformation of, of a business. And we can be talking about a business whose business model is being and they have to make a decision whether to cannibalize their business or not, or it can be a business that really wants to add new types of services and revenues to their existing in order 
to transform and not to become extinct. And there's different ways. There's microservices, there's ways to partner with native techs, and that can be done either by connecting to core legacy systems and being helped by cloud providers to do that gradually in a smart way, breaking silos slowly or doing it on the side. There's all these options that are being launched and tested in the market as we speak. I think that alone could be a whole discussion, I would say, Rudolf, on another topic. And in wealth and asset management, it's the same challenges, I guess. So let's take it as a teaser for another event or a podcast. All right. Now, maybe a random question, but again, I'd like to pick on something you just you mentioned before is about investing, right? So the advisors need to know where you are. They need to go through what big banks would call an advisory process, and we can slim it down, hopefully, and or make it faster and easier, less, less cumbersome than it has been. But when it comes to investing, of course, when you look at Europe versus North America, where you were before, you could notice that many people in North America or in the UK as well, or many more people invest in stocks, right, directly, not just in funds, etc. But still, many people trade here in Switzerland as well. But when you look at the structure of the market here, we have two big banks and then a large number of others. We have one big, say, discount brokerage, but still we're paying huge fees for trading. So Will commission-free trading come to Switzerland anytime soon, you think? As Switzerland is a small, in terms of a number of retail customers, it's a small market, right? We are, what, 8 million something people. There are fintechs that, at least for Swiss stocks, not U.S. stocks, they offer a zero commission trading. I know of one, Flowbank, not for U.S. stocks, as I said, but zero commission trading for the local Swiss stocks. So it's coming. Ironically, Switzerland has been behind in terms of um, open banking, let alone open wealth. So yeah, that that's the reality of it. And a lot of fintechs, as we all know, have traditionally launched in the UK for many reasons. And then branched out in continental Europe in the Eurozone. Switzerland is a small market. It has a different currency. So we don't see many of the European fintechs coming and launching here. But I think it's inevitable. The trend is just behind. It's a matter of timing. All right. So competition in this space is coming. Watch out. All right. When people listen to podcasts about fintech from Switzerland, they expect to talk about crypto a lot, right? So what do you think is the outlook for crypto this year? Are we really going through a crypto winter? Or if yes, is it going to be a long one? Or what's going to happen when we come out of it at the end of the year? First of all, we said what I said about Switzerland being behind on fintech and wealth and openness and so on. But with one very big exception, which is blockchain for finance and crypto, because Switzerland is very much ahead. And any type of trading or service around crypto, you find it here in Switzerland. There's a huge ecosystem, huge number of companies here. And we all know that this is because of a very innovative ecosystem that is supported 
by the clarity of FINMA, the regulator, in terms of digital assets and so on. So I see, in, uh, the, and I was in Davos during the WEF, um, where the presence of blockchain, crypto, Web3 was very solid, the sentiment was very solid despite the frauds and mishaps that have happened that happened in 2022 in the industry. So I'm really very optimistic, if you want, in terms of the industry being pretty resilient to what is happening. Yes, a lot of centralized crypto businesses suffered and are suffering because basically of the FTX collapse, but the decentralized world, the world of organization, the world of building a new infrastructure and enabling Web3 is continuing. In terms of prices, I'm not the person to, to comment on this front, but what I can tell you is that the ecosystem is here and the incumbents are clearly very committed. Even during the 2022 winter, we saw big name into the custody business, the trading business, and so on. So that, that's my sentiment, and I continue to look into the industry and its developments as it matures and it figures out its way into higher adoption rates. Great stuff. So it sounds like if you are in this space, just shoulder on and it will all work out one way or another, but ideally on the plus side. Before we go, I just have two easy questions. First of all, do you have a favorite business book apart from, of course, what you are creating, but any other business book on any of these topics we mentioned that you could recommend? Oh, I would have a great difficulty to pick a fintech business book, a favorite one, because I have many of those. I would say if you put the gun on my head and you had, I had to pick one name in a series of books, fintech books, I would say Paolo Cironi, and I would recommend the financial market transparency theory, a very small book and of course his latest book banking fintech and the platform economies but that's really a, a tough pick i have many favorite business books non-fintech that are around uh, more the economy and business there's a couple that i'd really like to share and invite the audience to take a look at one is a book called the people-centered economy and it's a book that talks how to move from an economy that is very much task-oriented and project-oriented, if you think how business operates, versus an economy that is people-centered. It's just an amazing book, and it's a compilation from different authors. And the latest book that I read, business book, and I'm very excited about is Penny Power's book, This is Personal. And that is for an excellent read for entrepreneurs and small business owners rather than trends in big corporates. And all these books, insights around what is going on in business in, in general. And of course, 
how technology is changing us all and our culture and therefore the businesses, how we manage our businesses and so on. And finance is always in the middle of this because it will always be in the middle of any economic activity. So from fintech to general business to finance, that's how I like to look at the world. Absolutely. So thank you so much for the tips. I'll put them in the show notes as well. And before we go, what's the best way for people to reach out to you, learn more about what you are writing about or about the videos? Where do they find it? What's the best way to follow you? I'll share with you my link tree, my link tree link if you want. And, and LinkedIn is one of the best places. I'm very big on LinkedIn. I have a huge following there. I, as I said, I publish on Medium through my name. You can follow me there. I publish every uh, Thursday. And then on YouTube, I have my channel under my name. I publish a video every Wednesday and the audio of those videos are also on Spotify and Apple. Yeah, those are the places to Wonderful. interact. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Effie. So good luck and uh, follow Effie Pilarino on all of those channels, LinkedIn, Medium, YouTube, Spotify. And uh, thank you, everyone. And uh, good luck. Thank you very much, Rodolfo, for having me. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.